Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 106 of the Biohacker Babes podcast. I'm Renee tuning in from Las Vegas today, and I have my sister here from New York City. Hello, hello. Miss Lauren Sampatero, my sister, co-host, amazing best friend. <laughs> and we have a great guest for you today, Dr. Jay Wiles. Your mind is going to be blown, so I can't wait for you to hear this entire episode. You're just going to love it. But we are talking about heart rate variability today. I think we find a way to talk about this in every podcast because we're just so obsessed about the topic. But Dr. J is really our go-to expert on this. If you ever have questions on HRV, he is your man. So he's going to share a lot of insights into really what we should be looking at with HRV testing, why we should be using biofeedback. And we talk about a lot of different devices, maybe some of the pros and cons and what you really want to be looking at when you're tracking this over time. And he gives some really good tips that we can all, I think, start incorporating right away, which we always want that, right? We have the data, but we want to know what to do with that data. And he gives actionable steps in this episode. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I love all the myth busting. So if you're, you've been sitting at home staring at your data going, why is my HRP so low? And theirs is high or that person says this. Like, I think after hearing today's episode, you're going to be a little more calm confident and feel more informed about what you can actually do with this data. And you'll really, it'll really hit home that we never, ever want to compare this to anyone else. And he explains that really beautifully. Such an awesome, generous, really smart, kind guest. We are just so happy to have this conversation. So if you have any additional questions, we try to do our best to field the questions that you send in. If you have additional questions, please let us know. We're going to try to get him back because we just scratched the surface, which is hard to believe because my brain is like swelling from information right now, but there is so much more and there's so much more coming down the pipeline with research because it's, it's really just beginning. So we hope you have lots of fun today. Do you want to read his bio? Yeah. So Dr. Jay Wiles is an international speaker, scientist, clinician, influencer, and subject matter expert and authority on the interconnection between the human stress response and health performance and optimization. Dr. Wiles is a clinical health and performance psychologist with board certification in heart rate variability, biofeedback, and peripheral biofeedback, and works as a leading consultant in psychophysiology to health influencers, professional athletes, and teams, executives, and high performers. He has pioneered new and innovative means of using heart rate variability and respiratory training as both diagnostic indicators of the dynamic nature of the human stress response alongside therapeutic tools for regulating and conditioning this response for peak human performance. He has an extensive history of working with top performing athletes and his consulting firm, Thrive Wellness and Performance, has held contracts with leading biotechnology organizations where he has engaged in research, development of therapeutics, and development of behavioral retention programs. Dr. Wiles has operated as the co-host of the Ben Greenfield podcast since 2019. 
When he is not podcasting and working, he enjoys picking up heavy things and throwing them down, doing a zone two training and spending time with his family on hikes and adventures. I had Hi. such a great time today. Me too. I was just going to say, I love when people throw in their hobbies at the end of the bio, because I think that's just such a huge part of health and biohacking, having something that you enjoy. So um, I think you you really will, will feel that joy from his personality today. Yeah. Yeah. He is really walking the talk, I would say. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's a really, really great inspiration of what we should all be doing to optimize our health. And, and I love that he prioritized family, prioritizes family time. I think that's just so essential in, in the health space. So welcome Dr. Jay to the biohacker babes podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey guys. So glad to be here with you both. Yeah, this has been planned for a while and we're so happy to finally have you on because you are our go-to expert on one of our absolute favorite biohacking topics in the world, and that's heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been following your work, you know, with your work with Ben Greenfield, and then I had the amazing opportunity to do your HRV masterclass in 2020. And I know I've talked about that a little bit on the podcast before, and you really opened my eyes to how complex this topic of HRV can be. Oh, and yeah. we get so many questions. Everyone's always like, why is my HRV low? How can I improve it? Like, I think people are really, really fascinated by it, but they're confused. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're going to help to break that down today. Um, so maybe just to kick it off, let's start with the basics. Like if someone doesn't even know what HRV is, how do we explain that in a really simple way for people? Yeah, great question. You know, one of the things that you really highlight is the mass amounts of confusion that that just happens around the subject matter. And I think the 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 reason this happens is because if you look at every major wearable company right now, the biometric that is heart rate variability is built into these wearables, which means that people are going to have some level of interest in figuring it out and they go listen to podcasts or a lot of times too they'll just read articles. And a lot of times when they get into the science and research, uh, it's it's either kind of one of two things that I hear from people. Number one, like it's just way too complex. So they start reading about these biometrics like SDNN, RMSSD, PNN50, like all these things kind of like are, are on the screen. And they're like, I don't really know what to do with this. I don't know if I have the time and the, or the knowledge set to kind of jump into the science. So they just kind of back away. So that's one thing that happens. Oh, the other thing that happens is they read this stuff. They really try to understand it, but unfortunately there's just a lot of myths and misconceptions that are, that kind of continue kind of when people don't really uh, speak to the true science of heart rate variability, what it is and what it is not, because it's not an all encompassing type of biometric, but it's one that gives us a lot more information than what we probably even realize. And so at its core, heart rate variability is, as it says, it's looking at the variance and in inner beat intervals of heartbeats. So what that means is, is that every time that the heart beats, it doesn't operate like a metronome. So it doesn't pace itself. And, and that kind of sounds counterintuitive to some people. They would think, oh, well, a paced heart, like that makes sense, right? Like that it would just kind of pace itself. Well, the heart does have pacemakers that take over when we're in a sympathetic load, or we call that a fight or flight experience, but that's actually not a great thing to have turned on chronically. We can talk about how, why we need it and how it's actually quite useful, but chronically, that's not a good thing. A paced heart or a lack of variability in between heart kind of demonstrates a lack of resiliency to handling stressors, whether that's physiological stress or psychological stress. And we can measure this quite easily, actually. Uh, We just need the ability to capture heart rate. And once we capture heart rate, then we utilize algorithm-based systems 
and machine-based learning to transform the data into something that's usable and, and practical. And it's not to say that heart rate in and of itself is not usable and practical, but heart rate variability is a great proxy to nervous system functioning. And I've said all that to kind of get to that place there is that when we think about heart rate variability, what we want to kind of use that as is a data point or information as a proxy as to what your nervous system is trying to tell you at that moment. And it can tell you a multitude of things, which we can jump into. But did that, uh, is that what you were looking for? Just kind of a basic explanation of yeah. heart variability? That was yeah. a great explanation. Cool. I think the most important thing that I think is always a good takeaway for Renee and I in explaining this is that the trends are so much more important. I think some people get so locked into a number. Mm -hmm. What are some advice you could give on how to understand what it should be from day to day? I mean, there's so many normative values per age group, per gender, mm -hmm. depending on you know what you're trying to achieve. It's like just an influx and overwhelming amount of data. So how do we kind of step back and see the big picture of maybe what we really should be aiming for? Yeah, this is such a great con uh, a great concept to learn, but also to something that's very tied into the misconceptions that a lot of people have learned about heart rate variability. And, you know, kind of the old adage that people you know tell me all the time is, isn't higher better? The answer <laughs> is not really. Um, there's no evidence. If you scour the evidence on heart rate variability, there is no demonstrable evidence to say that somebody with a 145 RMSSD value is inherently, is in, in, uh, in, inerrant, what was the word I'm looking for? Uh, is inherently, inherently, yeah. No more. With yeah, it's, it's 12 o'clock. I should be uh, on <laughs> a point here. Is inherently more uh, healthy or higher of a higher level of performance than someone who says you know, has like a 75 millisecond RMSSD value. So like that's the the big misconception is that higher is better. You're right. We don't want to take our numbers and start comparing them. And this is the problem too. If I post something on you know Instagram or you know some other health influencer posts their numbers on Instagram. Instagram, a lot of times people will say like, oh man, like I see that, you know, Jay has, you know, this, you know, 120 overnight score, 130 overnight score. I only have a 20. Like, does that mean I'm going to have, you know, a heart attack going to cardiac arrest? And the answer is no, probably not. There are a lot of genetic factors, a lot of age factors, and even height in and of itself has found to be a factor. It's not us trying to compare ourselves to the normative population because this is not linear. Like this doesn't work like blood pressure. So can we kind of have like parameters around blood pressure that can be indicative of someone who's either high, low, or kind of right where they need to be. There's nothing like that for heart rate variability. The only time that metrics can actually be compared to a normative basis would be for those individuals who are taking 24 hour readings and then comparing them to individuals uh, on a mortality basis. And these are typically individuals who have already had heart attacks and they're looking to see about the predictability of having another heart attack in the future. And that's really the, the, the bulk of the research that we have for normative comparisons. So this takes us back to the point of kind of what should we be comparing? Well, we should be comparing it to our normative baseline, our norms and our norms only. So I, I kind of like to give easy numbers and representations for people. So let's say again, and again, this might sound really high for people or might sound low for some people. I'm just going to use the number because it's easy math is I use hundred, hundred milliseconds. So if we look at hundred milliseconds, as kind of like the individual's RMSSD value as their baseline. We look to see from day to day, consistent readings, typically in the morning, first thing, untainted readings, how much of a shift or modulation is there from that number? So when we think about training and recovery, I kind of use what's called 
I use what's called the 2040 rule when it comes to training and recovery, which means that when somebody has, let's say, a drop in HRV by about 20%, using 100, so if they have 80 or below, then that should be kind of a red flag to say, okay, the nervous system is saying that there hasn't been as much time to repair. There's not as much resiliency within the autonomic nervous system here. Like maybe you should pump the brakes and take it a little bit easy. You kind of have a little bit more of a fight or flight response going on right now. If it drops below 40%, so 60 or below, then that's from a training perspective where I tell people, okay, that's your nervous system saying you're primed for injury. You're not fully recovered. You might be overreaching, overtraining. Let's go ahead and pump the brakes severely and maybe just take it as a rest day. So 20 is kind of like where I say, hey, watch out for it. 40, it's like rest day. Like really you need to be careful because your nervous system saying there is a lot that is priming you for injury here. And then the flip side of that goes as well. If you're 20% above your normal baseline HRV, I say you're really primed to get going. And if you're 40%, which doesn't happen quite often, then yeah, you need to go hit your high intensity interval training, your Metcon, your whatever you need to be, because your nervous system's really saying like, I'm, I'm ready for it. Now, like I'm good to go. As long as your data is captured effectively, which uh, we can get into here as well, because a 140, like let's say on an aura ring, which has been very validated, may mean something different than a 140 on something that hasn't been validated and included artifacted data that is uh, taking that number um, falsely high where it shouldn't be. Really interesting. So I, just a follow-up question to that. I, we know that we want variability within the variability. So if you're listening to that and taking the recovery day when you need to, we also should be grateful for days where it's a little lower, like, right? We don't want it to always be high for us. How do we know how much of that is good? And if you listen to your data, should it bounce back? And like, what else should we be looking for there? Yeah, yeah. Variability amongst variability kind of sounds like a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a you know tongue twister, but it's true. <laughs> like we want to see variability because that, that tells us that we're doing something or maybe not so doing something. Like, especially if we're thinking about training and performance, like we want to see the, the needle moving in, at some place. Like if it's staying consistent, that's okay. But also too, we want to see when we're primed. And then we want to see when it's kind of affecting us or kind of taking a toll on us. Like you wouldn't expect somebody to work. I mean, like I work with a lot of triathletes um, or a lot of, uh, a lot of like just really like um, hardcore obstacle racers. And these individuals will train super, super hard day in and day out. And then when we look at their data, you would expect to see downward trends when they're training harder and you do. So that yeah. means, okay, now it's time to recover. Like you have to always combat kind of all that hardcore training with recovery. So it's a matter of kind of listening to the data to look at trends. Like, are you trending downward? Um, and especially if you're, are you starting to reach that 20, 40% below your baseline? Are you trending upward? Like all of this information is data. You have to make it actionable. So what I tell people is that the information is really interesting, uh, but the level of self-awareness without self-regulation of the, your data or usefulness of the data is really essentially useless. Um, mm, it's like yeah, if you take yeah. your, it's like taking your blood pressure or, you know, taking blood glucose, having a CGM on for, for instance, and then like just checking it and be like, Oh, that's interesting, but not doing anything about it. Like what we <laughs> want eating ice cream. <laughs> right, exactly. What we want to do. Yeah. Justifying our bad behaviors. So what we want to do is then take the data and say, okay, so how can I make this actionable and not just something like, Oh, it's that's, that's interesting. And that's one of the pro big problems with wearables, to be honest with you, is that almost all of them operate as diagnostics, which is great. Like we need that data, but then we 
we also need the therapeutic, which is the action. Like, what do we do about it? Like, what is the actual steps that we take given this information? Right, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a huge part of biohacking. Like half of it is collecting the data. The half is figuring out what to do with it and making healthy changes. So yeah, I totally agree with that. If we can take a step back about like the autonomic nervous system. So this is really the best way to measure the nervous system. Can we talk about like what's going on with the parasympathetic versus sympathetic? Because everyone thinks like sympathetic is bad. That's fight or flight. It's stress. We don't want that. But can you explain the the importance of the balance there? Yeah, sure. So the thing that a lot of people need to realize too, is that these are not linear systems, not one is turned off and one is turned on. So it's not like we have a flip of the switch of the sympathetic system, flip of the switch of the parasympathetic and just kind of a quick primer for anybody who doesn't know the difference between those two. The sympathetic nervous system um, is the branch of our autonomic nervous system that is responsible for our fight or flight response. So it is going to be something that is less on conserving energy and using energy to gear us up to either take on what's ahead of us a stressor, i.e., or it is something that prepares us to get, get the hell out of there. So that's the sympathetic branch. The parasympathetic branch kind of works in tandem with the sympathetic branch, but it's really intended to be the rest, digest, and relaxation response that helps us to conserve energy, aids in digestion, and allows us to repair and to recover. And, a, and I like to think of the analogy of kind of a double or a, 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 a double footed braking system or driving system. So a lot of times people think it's like, oh, we have the gas pedal and then we remove the foot off the gas pedal and we press the brake. It actually doesn't operate like that. And I'll explain why here in a second. The way it works is that when we press down the gas pedal, i.e. our sympathetic nervous system, we can actually also engage the brake system with it as well, double-footed driving. So this is something that a, a lot of people tend to, tend to not realize. And again, that's the relaxation response. Why would we need the double-footed driving system? Let's think about it from a sports athletics performance or even too from the high-level executive about to give, uh, you know, their meeting um, to, to a, a large group of investors. So this individual needs to have their heart rate increase. They need to have kind of that ability to zone in to kind of what they're doing, but they also need the ability to control the parasympathetic nervous system at will. So do you want to relinquish control of the gas pedal and just put on the brake? No, it's not quite effective to do that, you know, within that context, whether it's athletics or whether it's, you know, within the board meeting to investors, you need the ability to modulate in and out of them at will. And that's the point. That's the key point here. And I think for any, anybody as a takeaway is that the whole idea of gaining access um, to data from a heart rate variability perspective is then to be able to use it so that you can better self-regulate. You can better go in and out of the utilization of either system, parasympathetic or sympathetic system at will or engage them both or relinquish control of both at will. And I think that if we, again, we could boil it down into one concept is that self-regulation is all about nervous system control. It's you telling your nervous system when and where you want it to, to act or not act. So that's kind of how they both both work in tandem with one another. And and, and the last point before I shut, shut up is that when we think no, about kind of- this, yeah. <laughs> Okay, good. All right. So when we think about their interconnections and their, and their workings, is that again, everybody wants to villainize this idea of the sympathetic nervous system as being kind of like the bad guy. It's kind of like the same thing as, you know, cholesterol and fat used to be thought of as the bad guy. What we're actually finding here is that the sympathetic nervous system can aid in so much, um, especially from a sports performance, uh, especially from a cognitive performance perspective, that it is indeed, it has its ability 
to have deleterious effects on the body. But for the most part, and the way it's, you know, it should be utilized, it can actually be quite effective in aiding peak performance. And so what I mean by this is that we want the ability, again, to control and turn that gas pedal on at will. We want to be able to exercise control over that. But the problem is, is that we can use that transiently and acutely, but when it starts to be engaged chronically and the brake isn't being active or we can't activate it nearly as easily. That's when we see some systemic problems. That's when we see increases of cortisol, epinephrine, and then also inflammation that can lead to deleterious effects. So again, we don't want to villainize the sympathetic nervous system because we need it. Like it's a, we would die without our sympathetic nervous system, but when it's activated chronically, that's when we see the really bad long-term effects. Mm. And do we see that chronically activated more so, you know, in today's world, it's just people are really stressed out. What's the oh, main yeah. factor there? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that when you look at our modern day society and the amount of stressors that's been put on us, and even here too recently in the last year with COVID-19, uh, we see people at an all-time high of stress. And there's nothing from a research perspective that is indicative of stress load going down or our ability to self-regulate going down. And what I mean by that is that we don't see, we see an upwards uh, movement or upwards trend of increased experience of stress and anxiety and depression. And, you know, this is, due to many factors, whether it's financial stress, relational stress, yes, physiological stress uh, with, you know, ailment disorder. Uh, there's so many things that are interconnected with our stress response. And that's one thing too, is that we know that different ailments that people experience can affect psychological stress, but then vice versa. This is a bi-directional relationship, right? When we experience psychological stress, especially sustained long-term chronic stress, that's going to affect other health outcomes. So it's all interconnected with, with one one another, like you can kind of ask the question, like what came first, the chicken or the egg? We don't know. It doesn't matter. Let's, but we know the one thing that we can control is our ability to regulate the stress response. And the great thing about it is that every single person can learn basic techniques, basic tools for utilizing their innate power to control their nervous system. And that's a pretty cool thing. Totally. So yeah. even though we have this chronic stress and we need a balance between parasympathetic, sympathetic, but most of us are more dominant sympathetic, it seems like we're supposed to be working on the parasympathetic also because of the vagal nerve connection, mm -hmm. right? Like we shouldn't be tossing in these, these stressors to strengthen the sympathetic. Is it already pretty strong? Like what, how much of our time should be spent in just like doing breath work or just trying to calm the nervous system be, being still, is there, right. can we put a percentage on that? Yeah, I don't know if you could put a percentage to it, but I know that we need to strengthen our ability to tap in or control either nervous system at will. And so what does that actually look like? So it's really funny. So I'm going to use two different breathwork techniques. One is Buteco or the Oxygen Advantage breathwork techniques by Patrick McCune, great friend of mine, uh, brilliant in his work, very different tactic than let's say Wim Hof. Um, so if I were to hook you up to a heart rate monitor, check out your heart rate variability when you're engaging in Wim Hof breathing, one of the things that we're actually going to see is a huge increase in sympathetic activity and much more of a uh, of a pause of vagal outflow. Um, but the intention is that that is going to act as a hormetic environmental stressor on your body so that then your parasympathetic nervous system will come and take control. So that's actually an indication. And, and then there's other tools and techniques like this, right? So cold thermogenesis, another thing that you know Wim Hof teaches, um, saunas, a lot of these other hormetic stressors 
exercise, even exercise are ways to increase the sympathetic nervous system so that we have a compensatory measurement of the of parasympathetic nervous system come in to kind of uh, uh, clean up all the mess that can happen with the mm -hmm. sustained amount of, uh, of, of sympathetic overflow. So that's kind of one breath work technique that works to actually increase sympathetic output. The other one would be again, Buteco or oxygen advantage type work by Patrick McKeon. And this is really intended uh, to do the opposite thing to really engage the parasympathetic nervous system so that you can have a strengthened and conditioned response. And again, I tell people that we're looking to really do uh, something major when we're engaging in breath work. And the major thing we're looking to do is condition. We're looking to condition the nervous system. So we can do it transiently, acutely to help with transient or acute stress. That's a great thing. Like the one of my, my go-to in, 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 in regards to stress resiliency is to use breath work techniques. However, what we know is that it works similarly to compounding interest. The more that we do it, the more we become conditioned to that, to that type of tool usage when the stressor occurs. So I tell people all the time, when you practice heart rate variability, biofeedback and breath work, one of the things that you'll do is that the more and more you practice it, the more and more strength and resiliency you'll see in your nervous system. And then you'll see that the frequency, the severity and the duration of those stress events or those stressors, they tend to go way down. And a lot of times you'll look back on them and be like, Oh shit, I was really, I'm sorry. I don't know if I can cuss on your podcast, yeah, but go for like, it. Oh crap. Um, <laughs> I, I, didn't realize, right? I, did, I didn't know if I, that I was that stressed, but I really was. And look how I got through it. Like I changed the mechanics of my breathing. I changed my respiration rate. You know, I changed kind of my, my ability to breathe light and nasally. These are, these are, these are the things that are end up, that end up being conditioned the more and more you practice it. So I wouldn't say that you need to devote, you know, more time into parasympathetic, you know, training. I think that probably for most people is what they need. However, know yeah. that there are ways of increasing hormetic levels of stress, i.e. sympathetic activity in order to strengthen parasympathetic activity. So it's like you want to have both of them. Yeah. Right. So interesting that there's like such an expansion of breathwork techniques out there. I was playing around. I do lots of different breathwork, but I play around with the Wim Hof app and he has different time intervals for his breath. And I use most of them in the morning or during the day, but the other night I was like, let me try one of his slower intervals before I go to bed. I started doing it. I was like, Nope, not working. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just with that, like, really? I had to try something else. Yes. It, was, yeah. it was the interval. It wasn't necessarily the timing of it. Like, even though my intention was to go slower, it was like, this does not yeah. work before bed. Yeah, what were you feeling? I felt like, my energy kind of like rev up. I was like, this oh. is the opposite of what I want to feel. I'm yeah. trying to calm down. And yeah. even though it was slow and intentional, I felt my nervous system revving up. Yeah. Know thyself. You know, one of the great things that you just pointed out, Lauren, because this is asked all the time of me is like, um, uh, they're like, well, were you wearing, you know, heart rate monitors? Were you actually looking at heart rate variability? It sounds like you weren't, you were being your own, you know, data machine, your own diagnostic. And I think yeah. that's a key point too, is that a lot of times, like we think we need to rely on checking and our wearables, but sometimes just our subjective experience tells us, no, this is not working for me. I can feel viscerally my heart rate go up, my heart rate variability drop. I can feel that innate stress response just kicking in. And that's when you have to say, okay, stop it and pause it. But it's funny because I might try that very same thing you were doing. And I might just be like, oh man, look, my heart rate's going down. Heart rate variability yeah. is going up. Like I'm feeling like I can go. It's just, it's one of those things that I, I do not want any type of one size fits all of breathwork practice of heart rate variability training. Like we just have to know ourselves and, you know, as biohacking individuals, we test everything, right? I mean, we're an N of one and we hypothesize and hypothesize 
uh, we, we do hypothesis testing on everything that, that we engage in. So that's, that was really cool to hear. Yeah. yeah I did yeah. out to that. I'm like mine, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, even with like the aura ring, I love what you said about like, you can start to feel it. So I've been using my aura ring for over three years now, and I can wake up and pretty much guess what my readiness score is going to be yeah, just based yeah. off of how I feel. Yeah. So yeah, it's cool to be able to combine those with the breath work. So I, I did play around with the leaf device a little bit. So that's using mm -hmm. the HRV biofeedback. How does that breath work play into all of this? Is that very personalized what it's guiding you through? Yeah, it's a really great, great question. It opens up a whole new topic, which is this idea of resonance. Um, so resonance is a word that's utilized a lot in heart rate variability and especially in heart rate variability biofeedback. So as we kind of know, as beings, we resonate, like our body resonates with different frequencies of the earth, but then different frequencies of breathing, different respiratory rates. And so I try not to use the word resonance too much because sometimes it sounds like a little bit uh, heady or it sounds like a little bit uh, mystical or meta. Um, however, I mean, everything resonates in life. I think this is a pretty known scientific fact. One of the things that we know is that everybody, every human, especially adult has a resonance rate between four and a half breaths per minute and six and a half breaths per minute. And what that means is that somewhere in between there, four and a half and six and a half breaths per minute is a breath rate that is going to maximize or resonate your cardiac and nervous system response. So what that actually translates to is that, and I do this with my clientele all the time, and there's ways that, they, and, the, and, I'll, and I'll get to kind of why I'm saying this here in a minute, but I, I do this with the clientele all the time, but leaf actually has kind of a resonance predictor within it to help pace your breathing. And I'll tell you why that's good and why that's bad here in a second. Uh, but what it's actually doing is it's finding what is that breath rate that is going to maximize heart rate variability. And it's different for everybody. I mean, mine could be actually know what mine is. It's five and a half breaths per minute. You know, for you guys, it could be six breaths per minute. It could be four and a half breaths per minute. Like you, you just have to test it out. What we know though, is that when you get to that kind of magical six breaths per minute number, um, and no matter who you are, like you are going to increase heart rate variability at some appreciable amount. And you may not see it um, as much in your time domain indices, but the frequency domain indices, which really aren't built into a lot of wearables, um, they should be, but they're not built into a lot of wearables. We, that's where we see kind of the most uh, significant change. And I can kind of get into that subject matter here in a second too. But while we're learning resonant frequency rate, um, these are just kind of paced breathing patterns that are going to ma maximize the amplitude of heart rate variability and help you to better engage in more vagal outflow or vagal modulation. Now there's this word that's thrown around a lot, which is the word of vagal tone. And that's actually a word that's quite confused within the literature, but also quite confusing for the consumer. Uh, when you engage in heart rate variability, biofeedback or breath work, you're almost always going to engage in vagal modulation, but you may not be engaging fully in vagal tone. Vagal tone is something actually very different. Vagal modulation is when you see heart rate variability changing because of a system called respiratory sinus arrhythmia and the engagement of the baroreflex mechanism. That's a blood pressure regulation mechanism um, that helps to keep homeostasis within the body from a blood pressure perspective. Now, those are two of the main contributors to heart rate variability. But what we'd actually see if we knew that just breathing or paced breathing, if that affected vagal tone, we'd see that different values of heart rate variability would change. So we'd see an increase in that one value that I mentioned before, RMSSD. We'd see an increase in what we call the low frequency band at breathing at low rates. And then we'd also see um, a mean change in heart rate. So heart rate would actually go from wherever it was when you started, let's say 65. And once you're done, it would come down to 60 or 55 or wherever you ended up. 
If we don't see kind of fluctuations or changes, which would be a reduction in heart rate, then you may have engaged in vagal modulation, but you may not engage in vagal tone. And where we actually know that where a lot more of the conditioning, more substantiated condition or sub substantive conditioning comes from a nervous system perspective is when we truly engage in vagal tone. So I tell people that a lot of times it just takes more practice. It takes more kind of consistent practice to truly engage in vagal tone. Uh, but don't, and this is not to say like, don't think that if you're not engaging in true vagal tone that you're not doing good work, you just may not uh, be optimizing your nervous system if you're not you know, getting that mean heart rate down. You know, just kind of a little bit of a nuanced thing, but I figured I'd mention it because it tends to be a misconception. People think, oh, I changed heart rate variability. Therefore I changed vagal tone uh, potentially, but you have to kind of look at all the data and all the pieces of the puzzle, because like you mentioned at the very beginning, Renee, it's a complex thing to look at, a lot of data points to really examine. And it may not even be worthwhile mo worthwhile for most people's time to look at all that. For the biohacker who's really like, I'm into the quantified self, they're going to be interested in that. But for the everyday individual, like vagal modulation, vagal tone, who cares? <laughs> like, they're doing work. Just tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. That sort of feels like our mission for the podcast. Like we'll try to weed through all the data and understand it to make it more, you know, actionable for you. Because exactly. a lot of our users have played around with either the aura ring, the biostrap, mm -hmm. whoop, they're starting to understand that this biometric is important. I know you've said it's not like a across the board panacea, but it is really important to guide our recovery. But mm -hmm. they just want to know when I wake up in the morning and I see that number, like what the heck am I supposed to do? Yeah. And you know, every time we put out questions, our guests are like, it's so low. I'm doing everything. I'm so mm -hmm. healthy. Yes. What else can I do? So maybe can we get into some other things that could possibly positively affect or strengthen other than breath work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what one of the things I will say, because again, I just want to hone on this point is that just because your HRV isn't kind of high doesn't mean that you can't increase your HRV. However, we try to think about it in terms of like, is it worth your time trying to spend all of your effort to raise your HRV? And <laughs> can you take an HRV from 50 to 100? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. There's so many variables that are at play here that yeah. really what you need to know is kind of where your baseline is and not be nervous with where it is. Because again, my, you know, 120 uh, may, I might, I might have like all the same health variables and health status as somebody who has a 40. Okay. So like that, like, let's, let's not get caught up in that high is better. Like there's reasons why higher can be more effective and from a performance perspective, but it's pretty marginal. Like there's no, there's no real good data out there to demonstrate that higher is quote unquote better. Hey, biohackers, we have a brief interruption in today's episode to tell you about one of our favorite ways to buy some of our favorite organic non-GMO grocery staples. The website is Thrive Market, and we get so many of our favorite products from the site. Some of the things I really like to buy are the organic olive oil and avocado oil, other food items, everything from that to like, I get my laundry detergent, my body wash, even my Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee. I get everything in one place. And it's just so convenient that within like a day or two, it shows up at my front door. And I know it's all really good quality stuff and it's all discounted. So it's really good prices on all of my favorite things. Uh, Lauren, what are some of your favorite products that you get from Thrive Market? 
everything that they sell, everything. There's so many fun things. I think this place is like Disneyland. I used to go to Whole Foods just because I thought the store was so pretty and I walk around and I buy things I didn't need. And now with Thrive Market, well, one, you get a 30%, up to a 30% discount. So the prices are way more friendly, but just really cool stuff like paleo and keto coffee creamers. You can basically buy almost the entire primal kitchen line, sauces, dressings, mayos, which are incredible if you haven't tried them. Things like jerky, I'll stock my cabinet with grain-free crackers or chips so other things don't end up in the cabinet, if you know what I mean. <laughs> they also have tons of beauty products, so they're all EWG certified. So if you've gone to that website to check your beauty products, you could head over to Thrive to actually purchase them. And they are just always adding new companies, new products. There's always a new weekly discount and you always get freebies in your cart. So if you want to try something, if you're not familiar with the company, add a freebie, try it out. Best part, now they have organic, sustainable meat and seafood and clean wine. So it has really grown from just a pantry staple to a full grocery lifestyle experience. Yeah, it's so perfect for today's world too. We can get it all online. And I love that the company is always researching new products and they have a very high standard of what they allow to be sold on the website. So we're big fans. So if you want to check it out, check out the show notes for today. We will put the Thrive Market link in there and that link will automatically give you 25% off your first order. And that is on top of the regular discount. So if you want to try a bunch of things, head over, fill up that shopping cart, and you'll get it in the next couple of days. Now, if you are looking to kind of really work on raising HRV, which I don't like even that term. I don't like the term of raising HRV because then we have to say, well, what does that mean? Why? Like, what yeah. is raising HRV? Raising HRV. Yes. Strengthen HRV, in my opinion, is you actually strengthening your control of your nervous system. So I care a lot more about how much you can modulate your nervous system than I do about where your number is. So this is the point, and this is one of the things that I tell everybody, and then I'm going to get into tools, which I know is your question, is that uh, I tell everybody, I would rather have a HRV of 20 but during a stress event, be able to raise my HRV up to 30, 40, or 50, than to have an HRV of 140 and only be able to modulate my nervous system when I'm in a stressed event up to 141 or 142 mm. or barely move yeah. the needle. Because why? What does yeah. that mean? That means that if I'm that person you know, with a 20 and I'm raising up to 50, that I have some pretty good control over my brake and over, and over my gas pedal. I tell it to do what I want it to do when I want it to do it the other way, you know, I, I don't have that level of control. So that's kind of the key component. So if I see somebody, let's say for instance, who has the leaf device and they're modulating their HRV like crazy, but they have a low HRV and they're complaining about a low HRV. I'm like, listen, like, again, I'd have I'd rather have the resiliency of your nervous system to bounce back from a stressor and to engage that system than to have a 140 and not be able to move the dial. So that's, I think for any of your listeners who thinks like I've got that 20 or I've got that 30 or 40, you know, uh, you know, RMSSD and I want to be like, you know, Jay or like you guys who have really high HR is like that's that's not the point the point isn't to try to raise the the mean baseline hrv because we don't have enough evidence to say that that's actually you know worth a lot of our time but again here's some things that i would say that you can do that will help to move the dial at least some point but more so are very effective in strengthening the nervous system as a whole 
So let's talk about this idea again. I know you said other than breath work, but I think that's the key component. Like breath work mm -hmm. and HRV biofeedback mm -hmm. are the absolute um, most powerful tools that are very you know close to us and very easy to use and a lot less expensive than some of the other things that I'm going to say um, that are quite effective in helping to uh, create resiliency within the nervous system. So that's one. Um, the other one would be basic mindfulness skills. And I like to utilize mindfulness as approach to heart rate variability, biofeedback and breath work anyway, but just being more in the moment and present. And I know that sounds really kind of easy to do, but as we all probably know, and many of the listeners no. know, it's a really <laughs> difficult skill. Yeah, it's a really difficult skill. Yeah. And that's because the mind uh, can act a bit like a monkey and be all over the place and throw stuff at us. And so learning to kind of better um, uh, engage our ability just to stay in the moment and not push, uh, push aside or you know, suppress kind of the crazy thoughts that, that, that we have on a daily basis is really important. Now, the other things that I love doing, um, and I think that these are, these are the components that are most um, substantiated within the research is exercise. Um, so exercise we know can help to create strong resiliency within the nervous system through hormesis. And so a lot of people ask, okay, so what kind of exercises have been found to better help, you know, control modulation of the nervous system? Well, the, the single-handed most important one that we see is high intensity interval training or high intensity repeat training hit or hurt. And so these are obviously quite intensive types of exercises that are done now, you know, no more typically than like three times a week, four times a week, um, really research from a nervous system perspective says, use your number to kind of tell you whether or not you can do it three or four times a week, you might just be able to do it like once or twice, or you may be able to do it more. I haven't seen many people even working with like CrossFitters uh, who can do it more than three or four times a week. They still do it, but, but their, their data says you shouldn't be shouldn't doing be. it. Yeah, exactly. Not yeah, but we see that the thermostat uh, tends to turn on um, the dial tends to turn from a heart rate variability perspective when you're engaging in that. One that I have seen anecdotally, but I'm on the uh, I'm, I'm I'm working on this research actually. We're working with a couple different universities to look at the effects of this. The other type of exercise would be zone two training. Um, so zone two training has become extremely popular here in the last year, two years or so. But if anybody isn't familiar with zone two training, um, it's different depending on who you ask. Honestly, some people will base zone two on your lactic threshold. Some people will base it on heart rate. Um, I think that's kind of the most accepted one um, because it's easiest um, to determine, uh, but that's just staying with kind of a low intensity heart rate. Um, so for instance, for me, I do zone two anywhere from about you know, three to four times a week. Uh, it's normally like a 30 to 45 minute run. And I keep my heart rate in between about 130 beats per minute um, up to as high as 145, 146 or so. And what I've seen is some substantial movement in heart rate variability and resiliency from zone two training, kind of just this low intensity, um, kind of more extended time. And uh, I know Peter Atia talks a lot about zone two. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of one of his, one of his big things. And, and so what we're really looking now, not, not with Peter, but what we're looking at with two universities is to see whether or not in a more long-term zone two training, how does that affect nervous system functioning? And I think what we're going to see and what we're hypothesizing is that it's going to aid in resiliency and recovery. Uh, the other thing would just be resistance training. Um, resistance training is another uh, huge one. Um, so lifting weights, picking heavy shiv up and, and putting it down or throwing it somewhere um, is really effective <laughs> in helping to modulate the nervous system. Then we look at things like nutrition. I don't want to get too much into nutrition, but I mean, it's one of the ones that's low hanging fruit. I'm a low inflammatory diet, you know, just kind of tailoring that diet to you is really important. You can actually utilize heart rate variability to determine the level of impact that food is having on your nervous system. So a lot of people will ask, okay, so how can I do that? 
Well, it's a little bit sensitive and then it's also a little bit general. So what I mean by that is that when we eat and partake of food, you are going to see an automatic decrease of heart rate variability. The reason being is because you're utilizing a lot of energy to consume energy. So you need energy to burn energy. And so, and so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, but what I tell people is that you can prime the nervous system prior to eating by engaging in some parasympathetic breath work. I think it's one of the most uh, low hanging fruit. So engaging in a couple minutes of breath work or heart rate variability biofeedback can aid in digestion and it can aid in, uh, in reducing blood glucose spikes as well. Now we've seen this in the literature. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I mentioned um, is, is that, but afterwards is actually is an extremely important thing to watch. So one of the things that you want to watch for is how long does it take for your heart rate variability to recover back to baseline after eating? What we generally see is about 60 to 90 minutes, which is actually very much coinciding with, with, with like a CGM or blood glucose variance is we know that about that 60 to 90 minute time, really more so the two hour time is where really where you see you kind of go up, down and back to baseline and, and your heart rate variability coincides with that. If you see that after 60 or 90 minutes that your heart rate variability is really staying low, especially if it's staying like a standard to two standard deviations below your mean, then it could be that you, number one, overconsumed, or you ate something that might be having a pretty inflammatory response to your body at that time. So whether it be, you know, that you ate processed sugars, or you maybe ate some too much linoleic acid, or whatever it may be that your body's not handling very well, your heart rate variability, or i.e. your nervous system will actually tell you and give you a little bit of information. So here's one of the things that I found personally, because I, I want to make this kind of practical for people. As I started testing this, you know, about a year or so ago, and I remember uh, we were eating, we were, I was, we were at the dinner table and like at the end of dinner, like we would normally like finish, you know, off with some like berries or we'll finish off with some, you know, whatever, whatever, maybe fruit. Typically I'm just kind of like as our, as our dessert and I was eating peaches. Uh, no, 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 sorry. It was grapes. And I noticed that my blood sugar was like, I was wearing a CGM at the time. My blood sugar was going crazy high, which makes sense. I mean, grapes are full of sugar, um, but it was just like more than I would have expected. It was like if I, I ate a piece of cake or something. And then I saw that my heart rate variability, like it just wasn't coming down. Like, an, I mean, sorry, it wasn't going up after 90 minutes, two hours. And like, I was like, what is going on here? So I was like, okay, scientist in me, let's test, retest, test, retest. And so I did it. And that was the thing. Like, it kept doing it. Like my blood sugar obviously was going way up. And what was coinciding with that is a real steep drop in heart rate variability. Every time I ate grapes, remove that variance or that variable. And then I was back to normal. So you can use it a little bit as a test or a proxy to see how well or how not so well food can affect heart rate variability. And then the other tools that I use, and then again, I know I've just been talking probably now for what the last like 10 minutes. So I'll shut up after this. Those are great tips. <laughs> the other tools that I love using, actually, I'm a huge fan of PEMF, pulsed electromagnetic fields. Um, and so, you know, there's different ways you can use this. Like I have, um, I have a Halo device um, that was sent to me. I don't know if you guys have come across Halo or seen them. Really cool device. Yeah. Um, but I use it a lot for recovery. I mean, utilize it a lot for just kind of like calming the nervous system. And I have actually seen some extremely interesting trends with PMF, especially from a heart rate trend. Um, I'll, I'll see my heart rate sometimes after I'm done using it going down into like the you know low 40s, high 30s, like just kind of sitting and resting. And I'm normally, my heart rate's normally around like 65, 63. 
three-ish range. Um, so a substantial decrease in heart rate. And then one of the things that I see coinciding with that is that when we do know there's a huge correlation between a lowering of heart rate and increased heart rate variability is I see heart rate variability tend to skyrocket um, uh, during and then after I'm using PMF. So I really like PMF. If you don't can't afford a PMF machine and it's not accessible to you, what you can do is you can take your shoes off and you can go out and you can stand in the grass and you can ground <laughs> yes. and you can earth uh, and you can get that all for free. You know, the PMF just gives you a huge pack, right? You know, all at once um, and, and you can do it short term, but go out and get it. And th there's not a lot of great research on that. And, and I, will, I will be the first to admit it. However, anecdotally, we have seen a large fluctuation of heart rate variability and nervous system regulation just by taking your shoes off and getting grounded. The other wow. couple of things that I'm going to mention. Yeah. Yeah. The other couple of things I'm going to mention is just cold showers, cold thermogenesis, getting in a cold tub, a uh, hot, cold contrast with sauna is another really, really good one. And then, you know, there's some biohacking devices out there that can be, you know, really great at like helping. Um, however, the one that I've come across, like my true biohack for nervous system functioning is, is new calm. Um, so if your listeners haven't heard newer, new calm is a neuroacoustic software that uses a biosignaling processing disc. And uh, basically, it's all about helping to increase alpha and theta brainwave state, and then also to increase nervous system regulation and nervous system functioning and resiliency. And I've seen it almost every single time I put on uh, any type of, of, of measurement of heart rate is I see some really interesting modulations of heart rate variability with using new calm. Um, so again, mm -hmm. that's, the, that's probably only scratching the surface of what I would say. But again, for the oh, sake well. of time, I want to pause <laughs> and, and so take awesome. a breath. Awesome. Yeah. I just want to circle amazing. back to the PEMF because I had such an amazing success with that. I, I'm an amp coil user and ambassador. Mm -hmm. and I started testing HRV with my aura ring and, and you can see on my monthly trends exactly when I started using my amp coil. It was like a it's massive incredible. shift up. My baseline dramatically changed and has not come back down since I started using it's it. Incredible. So like, yeah. This That's works. <laughs> uh, I, I want yeah. to, uh, you know, and I will be complete. I need to also to uh, be completely, you know, uh, upfront with everybody. I, I, I do not officially have uh, an affiliation with Halo, but it's a little bit of one. Um, and we're looking at doing some research on heart rate variability. They, they basically sent it to me to say, like, tell us what you think. And I started using it and testing all these things. And again, and, and this is I don't think it's just Halo. I think this is just, you know, a testament to PMF in general. It's yeah. incredible what you'll see. Now, and, and I know a lot of yeah. people are probably like, eh, I don't know about that. Well, try it out. Try <laughs> it. Yeah, see, see it. for yeah. yourself. <laughs> and if it doesn't work for you, send that joker back. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's kind of how I've felt with the Apollo band. I'm testing it out. I can't say I have personally seen any improvement, yeah. Yeah. but I guess some people do. So different for everyone. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to step on too many toes. I have no affiliation with Apollo. Um, you know, I, I have one sitting, sitting right here. Uh, I've seen that for some people, they, they're going to see change and they're going to see effective change. And some people like, it's not going to move the dial. What I have found is that anytime, and I almost wonder too, and again, this is just my hypothesis. Because I'm wondering if some of these devices like this, especially frequency devices, if they help to better aid or they're adjunctive in things that we're already going to do when we're wearing them. And let me tell you what I mean by that is that most of the time when I put on this, most of the time when I do PMF, most of the time when I'm doing a lot of these other things, 
I'm almost always slowing my breathing down. I'm almost always getting mm. into a lower respiratory rate. And that is always going to affect change in the nervous system. When you start to drop your respiration rate, generally below eight breaths per minute, but when you get it to the six or so breaths per minute, it is always going to affect change in your psychophysiology. And I just do that. And so that's a great, I'm not saying yeah. then again, then it's placebo for the Apollo or it's just breathing, but I almost wonder if they can help to augment or they're like adjunctive type treatments uh, totally. when you also slow your breathing down. So I don't write them off. Yeah. Again, I'm just one of those people who I'm going to say, I'm going to challenge you to show me the research and to show me data. Don't just tell me that, yeah, you improve or increase heart rate variability. Like you better show me the data. And here's the thing. And I, I know you guys know this. We are in the age of the quantified self and people People are going to call companies out for their bullshit if they don't show them exactly what's going mm -hmm. on and prove data change. Uh, and, and, and it's going to be the rise and fall of so many companies in the biohacking um, kind of domain. Because again, if you can make yeah. these claims and that's great, make whatever claims you want to, you better back it up because if you don't back it up, everybody else, especially on Reddit forums, I don't really know, yeah. right, but they're, they're, they're going <laughs> to they're, they're tell you, they're going to yeah. call you out or not. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I just say like, like, you know, try everything, test it out. And if it doesn't work, like make sure about prior to purchase that they have a good money back guarantee. And when if yeah. it doesn't work, send it back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, maybe the Apollo, it just makes me more mindful to breathe. Cause when I do feel that vibration, it does kind of bring me back to be a little bit more in the, in the moment and breathe. So, yes. Hey, if it does that, then something yeah, it, it very something. well may do that and that's not a bad thing right because again right. i'll tell people if the more you breathe and the more you change your me mechanics and i won't say the more you breathe but the more you pace your breathing and slow your breathing down the more resilient your nervous system is going to be and the more conditions it's going to be to automatically autonomic nervous system to automatically take over when you're in a time of stress uh, when kind of the crap hits the fan like your body is going to kick into high gear and it's going to get you out of something uh, with you without even you having to think twice about it because you've already conditioned your nervous system you put in the hard work already and now mm -hmm. you're just reaping the benefit and that is like right. that is the most beautiful thing about our human physiology is that we can train it and condition it uh, we're really retraining and reconditioning because all these things that we're working on especially from a breathwork standpoint are things we were born with and things that we did innately and then over time because of this chronic long-term you know stress and the exposure to different stressors whether it's you know family life financial life academics whatever it may be like it, it it's caught up and it's really wreaked you know wreaked some havoc on our body so we're reconditioning is really what we're doing Right. That makes yeah. sense. I was going to say, people are probably wondering, how are you measuring your HRV in the moment? Because like, you know, most of these devices, you wake up, you get your overnight score. What mm -hmm. are our options of testing throughout the day? So we can see, does our food affect it? Does yeah. a cold shower affect it? Yep. is a really great question. So you mentioned a device called the leaf um, and the leaf device is really good as a continuous biofeedback monitor. But here's the problem. If you wear a device around all the time is that wrist wearables as well as uh, chest wearables, EKGs, um, they can be prone, very prone to movement artifacts. So anytime we move, it can, unless it has really good software built into it, 
it might detect that movement as a heartbeat and say, oh, there we go. There's a heartbeat when in fact it's not. So artifact are just beats that shouldn't be there or it's detecting movement or it's detecting electrical interference. And so the problem is, is that not a lot of companies have really solved the problem of developing really good software to detect uh, movement artifact and remove it successfully while people are moving. Um, and so that's why you don't see a lot of devices like incorporating heart rate variability into you know, you know, in, uh, devices that are really looking at tracking movement. We're working on it. There are things that are kind of like really in the works now that's that are going to solve that problem. It's only a matter of time until technology is really good at that. I mean, this, that, that doesn't sound like a hard problem to solve. And I don't think it is super hard. It just takes a lot of you know manpower and time to do it. So mm -hmm. how do you do it kind of throughout the time? So I have two things that I like to do. So the leaf can be effective, but what I actually like doing more is just throwing on my polar. Um, so a polar H10 chest strap, very accessible heart rate monitor for, mo for most people. I mean, on Amazon, we're talking about like 60, 70, maybe 80 bucks tops nowadays. Uh, and then you can utilize a multitude of applications um, that are either quite cheap or quite free. <laughs> One of them would be Elite HRV, which is probably my go-to. The reason I like Elite HRV is because it's been validated to be accurate, uh, but it's also uh, very data dense. And that could be good for some people and bad for some people. Some people might get on Elite HRV and be like, oh, this is way too much information overload, you know, paralysis by analysis because they don't really know what to do for someone who's like in the biohacking community and really up on all of these things. And if you want to know kind of like all about those biometrics, like I did a podcast on uh, with Ben Greenfield, um, that was like a two hour plus solo. So it all in hurry variability. So that's a, that's really a great episode. It was awesome. We'll, I don't we'll know link how to that for so long, but it was really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, you know, I tend to be a, a, a little bit more on the verbose side than anything, as you probably can tell. So eh, talking isn't too difficult for me. I just kind of go. <laughs> I would have needed so yeah. many water breaks. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I know. I had my water next to me, but uh, yeah, I'm not even sure. Sometimes I'll have it there. And then if I get in the zone, I just, I just go. <laughs> well, yeah. That's great. <laughs> but, but yeah, back to, you know, I'll use Elite HRV, Polar H10. The other really good one that's actually been quite validated, again, also very accessible to people, is an application called HRV for training. And it's made by a guy named Marco Altini, brilliant data scientist in the heart rate variability research world. Um, it actually uses your iPhone or Android phone, your camera, plus like the light on the phone. And most people are like, really? Is that going to give me accurate data? Actually, it is quite accurate. Um, it may not be as precise and, uh, and have as high of a sampling rate as something like an EKG, but it's actually quite accurate. And again, HRV for training, the last time I checked is still free to download. Uh, and again, just uses your finger. It's a PPG sensor, just like your, your whoop or your Garmin or your BioStrap, uh, but very accurate. So you can do spot checks. Um, you know, we know that the most, the most evidence that we have right now is that the best time to check is, is first thing in the morning, like untainted and then it's consistent. However, it's something that I do again before, like this is, I'm just going to get my routine before I eat, say for instance, I'll throw my polar H10 on, um, even with um, when I'm with family. And then I'll just do about two minutes or so of biofeedback, sometimes a little bit less than that, sometimes more depending on when I am. And then I'll raise my HRV kind of getting more to a parasympathetic state and then I'll eat. And then afterwards, like if I'm trying to check, like I'll go ahead and check. I've become my own biofeedback machine, honestly. So I kind of just know, like I know intuitively, I can feel it subjectively. I don't need to use all of that nowadays, but it is a, it's still very helpful to be reminded to take a moment and just breathe and pace my breathing. So, you know, there's different ways of doing it, but I'd say that if anybody's looking to get started, 
go get you a Polar H10. Again, shell out them, you know, 60 to 80 bucks, whatever they are nowadays. Like it'll last forever. I mean, those things are meant to like last forever and just spot check in the morning and then just spot check throughout the day, utilizing Elite HRV or HRV for training. And you're going to get really good, accurate data that way because you're wearing an EKG. Yeah. Do you need to lay down or sit? or stand for those? Yeah. So you can do it anyway. Just be consistent. Um, there's nothing okay. to say that you need to do, you know, you know, supine or sitting or standing up. What we do say though, is that with standing up, you're much more prone to sympathetic output, right? Cause your heart rate's going to increase. Um, you're going to have more peripheral blood flow when you do that, or sorry, less peripheral blood flow. So one of the things that I say is that if you're going to stand, like you can do that, just stay consistent. I think it's just easy, like, especially in the morning to just like throw it on in the bed or like sit up and throw it on or like go to your you know meditation room that you have in your house <laughs> and do it there so like just be consistent with it but it doesn't matter gotcha. awesome yeah what a great experiment to do with the cgm too and see if you kind of get that same trend or you know the up and down that we get yeah. after eating yeah it's, so, it's incredible yeah. yeah so what about wearables that, that we already have mm -hmm. how do we know if this data is actually correct accurate how much should we weigh into what it's telling us? This is a, this is a really good question and one that I receive um, you know, almost every single week, you know, by by different listeners of podcast or that know that my my subject matter expertise. This is where it gets a little bit tricky um, because what we know is that not all data is the same and not all data collection is, is the same. So the thing that I would say too, and this is not to knock on any other type of, of company, is that the first and foremost thing before you take you know, that data and utilize that data is to look to see whether or not that company has validated third-party studies, which basically means that they didn't you know, claim it and then study it themselves or you know, create a white mm -hmm. paper. You want to see that either a university or other researchers that have 0.0% affiliation with that company have validated that tool to correctly do two things. Number one, collect heart rate. That's pretty easy. Like most, most, most wearables can collect heart rate pretty well, whether it's Apple Watch, you know, BioStrap, you know, Whoop, Aura, they all collect heart rate pretty well. The difficult part is factoring uh, and removing artifacted data and calculating, utilizing the best algorithms for heart rate variability. That's the hardest part is to accurately utilize these algorithms to create um, the picture of heart rate variability. So what's what do we do? Well, we look at validation studies that have taken those devices and compared them to EKGs, to clinical grade, medical grade EKGs. Uh, and so for instance, I know like Aura, Aura uh, has that. Aura has third-party validated studies that have demonstrated that they can accurately capture heart rate and they can accurately capture heart rate variability. Um, Elite HRV um, has has their, their software, HRV for training. Those have also been validated by third-party studies. I've been told I need to look a little bit more and maybe um, you know, someone from Biostrap can reach out to me. I've heard that they have third-party validated studies. Uh, when I looked on their website, um, I saw a lot with their own people involved, um, which again is okay, but I didn't see any third party. So again, some of them Biostrap, um, reach out to me because I'd love to be able to promote your stuff too and say, hey, third party validated go Biostrap. 
The one that I certainly haven't seen it with, again, I'm not saying it's not out there. I just have scoured and looked for it because this is probably one of the, if not the most popular is Whoop. I haven't seen anything. I haven't found their device to be particularly accurate when I've worn it. Again, I'm not, it could just be me. I'm not saying no, anything. I'm with you on that. Demean, yeah, I'm not saying anything to demean the company. They're, they seem like they have really great intentions. Just for me, I just didn't find it as accurate as some of the other devices. And again, I'm going to trust the ones with third-party validation studies. And that's why I've got my Aura on. Again, no affiliation with Aura. Um, uh, that's why I wear Aura. I love it. Um, I think it's a great you know, device for capturing orthostatic HRV overnight. Um, I still think it's worthwhile to take it in the morning um, with Polar. And then also, uh, you know, for me, like too, I, I think it's pretty accurate too in, in determining at least some stages of sleep. And you know, there's so much argument around REM, reasonably so, that it's not necessarily capturing REM as effectively as Mm -hmm. really capturing effectively at all, to be honest with you. Uh, but you know, again, you know, eh, you know, you, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, we yeah, say I, for the REM, I think it's more about the, the trends. Like it is. Yeah. 10, 10 minutes versus two hours of RAM. Okay. You did something differently probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that that's, ba that's basically it. I mean, you know, and, and the big thing is, is that like they were, yeah, it's, I think I like kind of, I think Biostrap might do this. So correct me if I'm wrong. Is, is it them that splits it up into like light sleep and deep sleep and within deep sleep is REM? Like, I think that's probably the more effective way of doing it uh, because capturing REM is, it's just really difficult without looking at brainwave state. They don't report REM at all. Biostrap just totally throws thought. out because they say they can't validate it. So it's just yeah. not a part of their measurement, yeah. which I appreciate. I'm like, you can't promise this is going to be accurate. Great. And I know on my aura ring, my REM is always like fairly low, which doesn't right. like intuitively feel right to me. Yeah. I'm sure there's more to that, but I think yeah. you know, just like you said, at the end of the day, it's like, can we subjectively sort of like sink into this and, and feel that that information is right or working for us? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think it's just, again, like it's everybody's so interested in capturing data and getting accurate data. And yeah, that's so important. Like we want data, we want information, we want it to be accurate as well. But again, I always come back to is like, what good is that data if you're not doing something actionable about it? So like, what good is a diagnostic, which is what we call wearables that provide data without a therapeutic? So what good is self-awareness without self-regulation? And that's one of the biggest things that, that these devices have missed. Um, and it's not saying that they're even intending to do that. It's one of the, no, I will say more so, not less the devices. It's more of what we as, as, as beings have missed is that the information is great, but if we don't do anything about it, then that information is, is absolutely useless. Like who cares what your heart rate variability is if you're not <laughs> actually going to make it actionable. Yeah, right, totally. Right. I think that's the next piece of HRV testing, glucose testing. Like there's all these companies coming out that we can test with, but we need like an actionable plan to go with the results. Yeah. And maybe yeah, in the next just, year or two, we'll see that. Just hold on. You just <laughs> hold on and we'll see. <laughs> okay. So I have a question. You have your 20, 40 rule for, for training. Like if it decreases 20%, you, this is sort of what you want to do with that morning baseline that you're taking. And then maybe you have an aura ring or a bio strap. If you're going to compare that and get that more accurate baseline, what do we want to see as far as affecting it on a day-to-day -day basis? Like how much do we want it to go up from one day to the next? Is it based on a 24 hour measurement? Like I've heard sometimes it's reflective of like days later, or weeks later. 
Yeah, it's yeah, and it can be and that's actually it's very different for everybody, right? So we all recover at different rates. I mean, genetics play into that. I mean, there's so many variables that you can't have one kind of prescribed way of looking at it. Um, You really just have to take it on a day to day basis. Because one of the things that we know is that the information that you're getting about that moment about that state that you're in, uh, can really be as again, as long as you've been taking it consistently at the same time and kind of in the same place to make kind of your judgment call on what you're going to do with that day. Um, that data that day is what you have to is what you have to use. And so yeah, so there, so you, you bring up a good point, um, because somebody can engage in a really hard workout and the nervous system really not respond um, to, uh, you know, kind of in a meaningful way from a data perspective, until until later on. But again, we don't have any way to predict that, right? I think through yeah. AI and machine based learning, what we're going to find is that we can have more regressive models that are better at predicting that there's actually a set of, of statistics within the heart rate variability world called nonlinear heart rate variability, which are made to be like regressive predictors of heart rate variability uh, from changes in time. The problem is, is that these, these metrics aren't very well validated nowadays, uh, but they're going to be, I guarantee that they will be at some point. So we can make it more actionable, like once they're actually validated, but for now we can really just say, okay, when I take my morning reading, as long as it's been consistent compared to what I have been taking it previously. Now I need to use that information to kind of better inform what I do, which is when we can employ the, the, you know, uh, 2040 rule, the 4020 rule, however you want to state it. And, uh, and so that's kind of where I go. So I try to keep it really, really basic. Um, you know, and when it goes from, and the one thing too, is I would say that pick one device, like if you're doing it on multiple devices, you're going to get really freaking confused. Um, because you know, (laughs) right. And yeah, in our community, like we have, you know, people who are using aura people who are using, uh, you know, bio strap and then people who are also checking in the morning with a chest strap like all, all three of them like we're using them and they're like oh which one do i go by do i pick the better one do i pick the worse yeah. one pick really, the better one say, yeah pick <laughs> yeah. the better one right i would say pick the pick the pick the one that you're being the most consistent with and really when i say most consistent with i would i would say that the gold standard at least as it is right now is to take a morning reading either with hrv for training or with you know your polar eight polar h10 and elite hrv and base it on that and then also too and this is another point and this could take me way down a rabbit hole so i'll keep it really simple is to know what metric you're actually using because for instance it used to be that apple watch would only report what was referred to as the SDNN biometric, which is only really useful from a 24 hour perspective. Like there's some evidence that we could use it from a short-term perspective, but when that came out, it was really, that was, that's a 24 hour gold standard in HRV. Whereas like Aura, Biostrap, a lot of these other companies are using RMSSD. And so people were like, my numbers are way off. Like my Aura ring, like I'm getting like a 50 and then I'm like, I had a 120 on my Apple watch. Like who's right, who's wrong. And I'm like, both of them are right right? They're just giving you completely different data points. And that's where a lot of the confusion heart rate variability comes in, right? Because people are like, I'm seeing so many different data points. Then when you really start to unpack heart rate variability and start to look at its component values or what we call the frequency domains, that's when people's heads start to really explode because they're like, I don't know what to do with yep. all the data. <laughs> yeah. And that's when I'm like, go to my podcast that I did with Ben if you want to deep dive into those things because those biometrics are extremely useful because that RMSSD, while it's a great ultra short-term measurement of, of your overall parasympathetic activity and it removes kind of breathing out of the process. So it really just kind of looks at orthostatic 
like values. Looking at the low frequency and high frequency bands, especially when you're training are extremely important. Um, uh, so again, I, I don't want to like take us too much down a rabbit hole, but don't just take the one value and say, that's the value I'm going to use like forever, like branch out a little bit and try some of the other values because it, it's like looking at an EEG and, you know, in a brainwave state, right? We can actually look at an EEG and from far away, like people, especially um, neurologists can eyeball it and say, okay, yeah, I can see, you know, normal brainwave functioning throughout or we can zoom in and we can see the component values. Well, here's how much beta output, here's how much alpha output, mm. theta output, delta. And we know that those coincide with different states, right? Same thing with the nervous system and cardiac system when we look at heart rate variability. So I always tell people like when you're ready to branch out, take your time, do your research, go read stuff by Marco Altini, go look at Elite HRV, go listen to some of my podcasts and like just take it one, like one metric at a time. Like don't try mm, to just unpack right. it all, take it one metric at a time. And it can actually aid in so much knowledge uh, in regards to recovery and nervous system regulation and modulation that I think you'll find benefit from it. But I don't, I don't tell people just to, you know, take the deep dive too, too, too soon. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely <laughs> yeah. link uh, to that episode in the show notes. So anyone that wants to listen to that, check out the show notes for that. Um, I, I have, have to say, a pad of paper ready to take notes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's you, yes. We're going to try and link to all the amazing resources. So to make it really simple for everybody, um, I just have to share. So I've been playing with my aura ring versus my bio strap. Mm -hmm. And one thing I have noticed is on my aura, like a late night out, maybe a few cocktails, my readiness drops versus bio strap, a really hard workout crushes my recovery. Like I can see there's a little bit of a difference there. Yeah. That's interesting. Are you seeing changes yeah. more in your sleep stages? Or are you seeing it more in heart rate variability? That's a good question. I need to actually break down what they're pulling that score from. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, yeah, these, these scores end up being proprietary and, and they're kind of like the, they utilize these algorithms to take component values from different biometrics. Whereas like, yeah. so like, for instance, like with aura, one thing on their readiness score is that the total duration of your sleep, which I don't think should have as nearly as much weight as what they put into it is a huge factor or a huge variable okay. in their readiness scores. I don't know what biostrap uses heart rate variability for aura is definitely a part of it, but I don't think it actually has as much percentage as it should have. Again, I'm biased. I'm the heart rate variability guy, right? Uh, so, so a lot of it's yeah. just kind of knowing because these scores are good. I like these kind of gamified, like all encompassing scores. Like I think they're really helpful. But knowing like what goes into them can be extremely helpful as well. Because again, like for aura, like if I see that, oh, my readiness has gone down and I look and I'm like, oh man, heart rate variability was good. You know, my respiration rate was good. My, mm. um, you know, my heart rate was way down last night. Oh, I see. I only got five hours and 30 minutes of total sleep last night, but you know, I still got two and a half hours of deep sleep. You know, I still got, you know, an hour rim for whatever that's worth on there. Then I'm like, okay, so I'm actually pretty good. They just kind of really, you know, negatively, you know, affected me or impacted me because my sleep duration was down. So those are gotcha. something that always, always factor yeah. in. So I'm somebody who like, I'll see the readiness, but then I'll also go in and look at the components. Yeah, yeah, you have to look at the why because yeah. the teacher is mm -hmm. going to score you how they want to score you. And exactly. I've noticed I go in there and I try to meddle sometimes just to experiment. And if I change my sleep time, like what time I went to bed or what time I woke up, because sometimes it's not correct, mm -hmm. I will like drastically change my readiness and yeah. my HRV on Biostrap and Aura. And to me, that's a problem. Yeah, but indeed. Again, just like looking at the factors that go into it, it's like, okay, let's look at my heart rate. Let's look at respiratory rate. And then you have, you know, you have a better picture. So not putting too much weight on that one number because 
obviously there's some uh, issues to be worked out. Yeah, right, th- right. there are. And, you know, I think that as, as time goes on, I mean, again, these companies, they're utilizing machine-based learning. They're using AI to make their, you know, uh, uh, software even smarter at detecting what's kind of true deleterious damage from, you know, the, the impacts of, you know, sleep stages, duration, heart rate variability. Uh, and then what is just kind of like noise. Um, so they're really trying to cut down the noise. And like, again, yeah. my, my input for Aura would just be like, one of the major factors you guys use is duration of time of sleep and that that there's importance there like don't get me wrong i think that the duration of sleep is important but as we probably all know quality of sleep and then other variable measures that those are equally as important if not more important than duration so because again i'll have like everything perfect but then again i get like five and a half hours of sleep and it was just like five and a half you know total hours of sleep and then i get penalized and maybe i should get penalized a little bit but should you bring me down to a 62 hell no right (laughs) Like, where's the curved grade here? Come on. Right. Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's really awesome to know that. Oh, yeah. Well, Dr. J, thank you for letting us pick your brain for the last hour. Um, I want to respect your time. So one more question for you. If you can give our audience one final piece of advice, something they can start doing today to improve their overall health, what would that be? So I'm going to give a concept and then something actionable. The concept is, and I'm trying to coin this term, but my wife would kill me if I said that because she's the one who coined it. Uh, The the term is basics before biohacks. Biohacks are fun. Like we all love those, right? But basics before biohacks. And so in my world, what does that mean? It means change your breath mechanics and change your breath pacing. So like just breathe from low and slow and slow your breathing down. So become more aware of it, that you're not breathing very well, and then change your habit. I think if you can just take that one tangible piece of really just affecting change in your respiration rate and how you're breathing, you're going to see a substantial cascade of physiological and psychophysiological effects just from that one thing. And I don't want people to just think, oh, that sounds too simple. Like that's the greatest part about it, right? Is that it is so simple that any of us can do it. We can do it anywhere and no one else has to know that we're doing it, right? We don't even necessarily have to set aside time for it. Like I tell people, like when you're driving in the car, on your commute, which typically is hell for people, dude, engage your breathing. Because while you may not have the fancy smancy heart rate variability data in front of you, you can know and you can rest assured that that data is sure as hell changing. And you're doing it just by tapping into something that is so close to us, but we're so disconnected from because all these stressors have impacted our life so much. So breathe, pace your breathing. Oh, great. I'm doing basics. it right now. Can you basics before it? biohacks. <laughs> I'm basics multitasking. Before, yeah, that one has to go to Hannah Wiles. Like she said it first. And I was like, I'm going to say that everywhere now, Hannah, because you're right. <laughs> oh, Hannah, we love you for that. Thank yes. you. <laughs> yes. Definitely need to coin that term. Amazing. Well, Dr. J, thank you so much for spending time with us today. The wisdom is just endless. So everyone check out the show notes. So many great resources. And then we will also link to how everyone can find you. So you're pretty active on you have Instagram, your website. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll link to the podcast. Anywhere else people should be following you? Yeah, I think that's it. Then that's it. You know, if you're interested in kind of the clinical work I do and consulting work, it's Thrive Wellness and Performance. So thrive-wellness.com. I will say, Perfect. unfortunately, because we've had such an influx over the last year or so, like there's a little bit of a waiting list. Uh, it's pretty lengthy. I'm not going to lie. But hey, sign <laughs> up because we'll get to you at some point. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, good. So not? many people are interested. That's a great yeah, sign. And- 
Indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, it's becoming everybody's stress as hell, right? I mean, COVID sucked, like, you know, everybody yeah. was at home. And so, yeah, people are just like, okay, I need to really retrain my nervous system because it's shot right now. I'm ready to get back out in the world and go thrive and, you know, kick ass. So understandable. Yeah. Are you all in person? Do you do any virtual? So I do only virtual. Yeah. Oh, so only, only virtual. virtual. Uh, and, and, you know, it's gotten kind of gotten to the point now again, where I have to only, you know, I'm only able to take a select few just because it's of, of my bandwidth. But if anybody's like really interested, reach out to us. I mean, my team will help you out info at thrive-wellness.com and, uh, and, and we'll be able to work something out. Amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Indeed. So grateful that you spent this time with us today. I learned so much and we're so excited that we got to share this with our audience. So thank you again, Dr. Yeah. J. Thanks guys. It was a blast. Thanks to everyone that tuned in today. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.